Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. Our series is Humanity at Its Best. The Gospel text is Luke chapter 3. What a tremendous book this is because Luke was written to those people who were value seekers. And you know, we hear a lot about values today and morals today. And Luke is a gospel written to Greeks who loved ideals, loved truth for truth's sake. Oftentimes not living up much to those ideals, but nonetheless they were truth seekers. But what Luke tries to do is capture that uh, uh, desire on the part of Greek-speaking peoples all over the world and point them to an ideal that they could achieve and could be part of their own lives. That they could have humanity at its best. And one of the reasons we gather from week to week here, one of the reasons we gather in community groups, one of the reasons we are part of women's ministry or learning center or men's fraternity or whatever, is that we desire humanity at its best. That's why this is a great series to go through because it tells us how we can do that how we can achieve that, how we can be at our best as human beings on this particular planet who are critical to the life of this planet, to the life of one another, to the life of our community, to the life of our state and nation. The values that are here, though, operate on a totally different plane than the values of our world. And this morning we come to a place where we are confronted with kind of a wild man who wants to shake up our thinking as to how these values and these ideals that would lift us up to a new plane start. And what you'll probably see as we go through this is that they start kind of hard. There's a necessary shock value that prepares us before we come to the place where we're introduced to the central figure of this gospel, and that's Jesus Christ Himself. He has to be preceded by someone. And he's preceded by the man that we'll see in Luke chapter 3, whose name is John. John the baptizer. John the Baptist. Before we look in this, I want to uh, say that there's a subject that that revolves around all this. And maybe I could best introduce it to you with a dirty word. You know, uh, I've always been fascinated that most dirty words are comprised of four letters. Have you ever noticed that? I'm not sure why that's true. I'm sure there's reasons for that. Maybe if some of you know the reasons, you can tell me after the service, but it's true. And in the ever-advancing crassness of our society, most of us encounter four-letter words all the time. Hear it on our TV. We see it in the motion pictures. We hear it at work. And whatever environment we choose to be in, they're there, and we hear them. Some are more repulsive than others. In fact, you may have a a couple of those words that came to mind that every time you hear them, you just wince. But I want you to know the dirtiest, most repulsive, four-letter word in the English language to me is the four-letter word that's spelled F-A-K-E. Some of you are going, He's back, but I'm not sure I was glad he was back. (laughs) Fake. 
That's the four-letter word that I think is the dirtiest. You know, there were a few stories that impacted us during the, uh, the Olympic Games more, impacted me, I should say, more than the one that I heard about a Polish gal named Stella Walsh. It's one of those flashback stories that you hear when the Olympics were going on. Uh, Stella Walsh competed in the 1932 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. Stella Walsh competed in the Berlin Games in 1936. She was born in Poland in 1911, and her name, I'm not sure I'll say it exactly right, was Stanislava Wolowicki. And when she moved to Cleveland, Ohio, she changed it to Stella Walsh. In 1930, she stunned the world. She stunned the United States in particular, but the world in general, when she became the first woman to break the 11-second barrier in the 100-yard dash. Because of that accomplishment, it was a sure bet that in the coming games, after she did that in 1930, that in 32 in Los Angeles, that she would win a gold medal for the United States. But you know, fate has its strange twist, and in the 30s there came the Depression, and in the midst of the Depression, Stella lost her job. She worked for the New York Central Railroad Company there in Cleveland, and she couldn't find a job, and there were no jobs available, and so, she finally ended up accepting a job with a Polish consulate in New York City, but only on conditions that she would compete, not for the United States, but for Poland in those Olympic Games. And she did. And she won. 1932, she won the gold medal in the 100-meter race, not for the U.S., but for Poland. And in 1936, she competed again for Poland in Berlin, this time winning the silver medal. After that, very little was heard of Stella Walsh for a number of years, uh, no reports, uh, no honors. She just kindly, quietly disappeared until 1980 when she had moved back to Cleveland, Ohio. On this particular day in 1980, Stella Walsh was on her way to buy streamers and decorations for the Polish national team that was coming to Cleveland for a benefit basketball game. She went by a bank and stopped there at the bank to uh, uh, withdraw some money and found herself in another strange twist of face, fate in the midst of a bank robbery. In the crossfire that ensued, Stella Walsh was hit and she was killed. Now that was shocking news to the city of Cleveland who knew her, this triumphant Olympian, dead. But as shocking and tragic as that was, it was nothing to compare with the shocking news that came out of the Cleveland morgue later that evening. Stella Walsh, gold medal Olympian, was a man, a fake. You know, Webster's Dictionary defines fake as one who imitates fraudulently, one who pretends, one who is a counterfeiter, an imposter, in every arena of life, whether it be sports or business or whatever, has its fakes. But I think if we were really honest here today, if we really thought about it, if we could step outside this arena for a moment and take a hard look, we would realize that few places provide a better environment for growing fakes than does the arena of religion. Perhaps that is because religion requires faith, and faith can be so easily faked. I found it was interesting that Webster's Dictionary, faith and fake were on the same page. 
right next to each other. By the way, faith and fake are played out on Christian TV every night as well. One of the greatest lessons of religious history is that what was for one generation sincere high spiritual ideals that were to be pursued vigorously at all cost became for another religious generation merely a game to be endured Sunday after Sunday at no cost. Entire churches, whole denominations, movements have fallen into the scandalous rut of rituals, meaningless motions, lifeless liturgy that have no effect, that have no substance, that has no power, and to which heaven shouts its profoundest four-letter obscenity, fake. There's no uglier word in heaven than that. There's no people that Jesus confronted more during His life than religious people, and in particular, religious leaders. Because in the area of religion, in the arena of religion, it's easy to fall into dysfunctional fakery. It's so insidious, and it's here. It's here now, even this morning. What I love about this passage in Luke 3 that's before us is that everything in this passage is real. This is real history. This man John is a real person, as we'll see. He's a real prophet, involved in a real-life situation with real religious people, and if we'll listen carefully, one who's exhorting reality back into religion. Look at verses 1 and 2. It's a history lesson. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch, that word tetrarch just means a ruler of a fourth of a kingdom. That's what he got from his dad. When he was a ruler of a fourth of Galilee, and his brother Philip was a ruler of a fourth of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias was tetrarch, a ruler of a fourth of Abilene. That's not Texas, that's Palestine. In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, I believe he starts this way in introducing us to John because this list of historical figures is meant to do document for us that this is, in fact, a valid historical event. We live in a world today that now is more and more treating the Bible as if it's just another book. A recent Gallup survey said belief in the Bible has fallen by 20% in America just in the last five years. In other words, this is not some tale that's about to be told by some religious mystic. This is a historical event, historically documented. If you turn back to Luke 1, and then you look in verse 3, Luke is saying to this uh, Theophilus, this friend he's writing this letter to, I've investigated everything carefully, and I'm laying it down just as it occurred. And now I want you to know, here are the dates, and you can date it. This is a real-life event. We can look at verse 1, and we know when the 15th reign of Tiberius Caesar was. We know his dad, Augustus Caesar, died on August the, 14th, or August the 19th, 14 A.D. And if you add 15 years to that, you come up with 29 A.D. If you count the year 14, it's 28 A.D. You see, this is real history. I might add that some of the more liberal scholars 
used to look at this list of people that are recorded here. And as they would see this, they would doubt the reality of many of these people who are listed. You might take uh, Pontius Pilate, the governor there. You know, for a number of years, Pontius Pilate was considered a mythical figure, a concoction of the biblical writers as they were developing this mythical figure, Jesus, that you could believe in. That is, until archaeologists uncovered his box seat, his 50-yard line seat, in an amphitheater in northern Galilee in Caesarea Philippi. Suddenly, Pontius Pilate was not a myth. He was a real historical figure. Notice uh, Caiaphas there in verse 2. One of the two high priests that are mentioned, the one who would later sit as judge over Jesus. You know, I don't know if you saw this in the Democrat Gazette this week, but just this week an article appeared where they found the bones of this high priest who would later preside over Jesus as judge. Let me just read it to you. It says, the bones of, this is an Associated Press article, it says, the bones of a first century man named Caiaphas have been discovered in an ancient burial cave in Jerusalem. And archaeological evidence indicates they may be the remains of the high priest who handed Jesus over to the Romans. Archaeologists happened upon the bones in November 1990 during the building of a water park in Peace Forest on the outskirts of Jerusalem. The age of the bones, the elaborateness of the ossuary in which they were found, and the inscription with the name Caiaphas found on the side of the casket-like box, that's a pretty good indication, isn't it? <laughs> Point to the man described in the Gospels. Uh, Ronnie Reich of the Israeli Antiquities Authority said in an interview Thursday, Reich said it is also one of, the, of only a few figures from the late Second Temple period. And I quote Ronnie, he says, Now to that small list we may add in all probability the high priest who presided at Jesus' trial. Reich wrote in the magazine's upcoming September-October issue. See, this is real history. Even John, who's mentioned here at the end of verse 2, this uh, figure who was not nearly as well known in the ancient world as these rulers that are listed, these seven rulers that are listed, even John is mentioned in secular resources. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish secular historian that was quite popular in the first century, we have his, his history book, Antiquities. He says this, Herod put to death this good man who exhorted the Jews to the practice of virtue, inviting them to come to his baptism and bidding them to act with justice towards each other. That's a first century author. See, this is real time and real events with real figures here. But the most important thing of this whole study is that this guy has a real message for us to put reality back into our religion. Josephus called him a good man, but the fact was John was a very unique man. Notice in verse 2 it says, he was unique only in this sense that the Word of God came to him. The word to in the Greek, epi in Greek, is really upon. It's a whole, it's a whole old Hebrew phrase that, that was used in the Old Testament to mark out prophets. So the Word of God came upon John. It pressed upon him so that he would deliver it. It was not his imagination. It was not his interpretation. The Word of God, revelation, came upon him and asked him to go do something, to speak that Word to his people. And that made John something that Israel hadn't seen in 400 years. They had longed for him. They had longed for one of these guys. They, they used to, to, to remember in fond remembrance the great prophets of the Old Testament. But for 400 years, the heavens had been as brass 
silent. And now comes this unique personality, a true prophet of God, with the word pressed upon him to speak to the people. And his mission as he came to these people was to deal not with a pagan people, but with a deeply religious people. And his goal was to shake them out of their religious forgeries and fakery and back into living, exciting, life-changing encounters with the living God. Now verses 3 through 14 tells us how he did that. I'm going to leave verses 3 through 6 first. He says, So he came into all the district around the Jordan, and he came preaching a baptism of repentance. That's interesting. One of the five different kinds of baptism in the Bible. This is a baptism of repentance. And it's a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then it quotes an Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah of which John was the fulfillment. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make His path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough roads smooth and then all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now that's a long discourse that can be succinctly summarized. And I'd like to summarize here at the outset what John's message really was. And it was this, and you won't hear this much today. His message succinctly stated was this, repentance must precede forgiveness. Repentance must precede forgiveness and the salvation that would come. That's why you start in verse 3 with Him preaching repentance, and when you get to verse 6, you find, and then all flesh shall see the salvation of God. But so often we don't hear that first part of the formula. We just hear forgiveness today. I think you could make it more clear in verse 3 if you just inserted the word necessary after the word repentance. It would read this way. You might even jot it in because it will help you interpret it. And he came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance necessary for the forgiveness of sin. It didn't bring forgiveness of sin. That was to come later on in a person of Jesus. But it was the preparation for the forgiveness of sin and a very necessary preparation. And if you tried to overlook that preparation, there would be no forgiveness of sin even when it was presented. That's the point. Maybe it should be obvious. But I don't think it's obvious when religious fraudulent forgeries come in and put a glaze over religious people and after a while they don't even comprehend stuff like this. But the truth should be obvious. You can't be forgiven of a sin that you have no desire and no unction from within to escape. And yet, and yet, even after saying that, we know that in time, whole movements of Christianity and churches and denominations move away from that reality to a powerless fantasy that downplays or overlooks altogether repentance of sin while going at the same time and continuing to offer forgiveness for that sin. That makes no sense. I call that the Godfather syndrome. Now this dates me a little bit, but some of you remember the picture of the Godfather? And I remember, I saw it when I was a non-Christian, and I thought, 
how ridiculous it was that they had that big wedding and they went in and they christened the baby and the whole mafia was there. And now they were listening to the priest speak and you know they were saying their Hail Marys and they were forget asking for mercy of God and they were christening this baby and then they left and went and blew a guy away. No connection between the two. But you know what happens in time, even to us? In time, even to us, we forget about that there is an unction on us to move away from sin, to identify our sin, to own up to our sin, to repent of our sin before we move into forgiveness of that sin. We forget that altogether. And we wonder why we're powerless and we're weak. John wants us to know, you need to put some reality back into that religion. And certainly that was true of the people of Israel. Tremendously religious, going through all kinds of religious motions, giving their money, offering sacrifices, attending services, being of service, being affirmed by the priest in God's love and their specialness as being children of Abraham, but without any of that effort, any of it affecting the way they lived, or what's even worse, how they even wanted to live. They had totally disconnected faith from real life. We had a whole movement in the early part of this century that disconnected faith from real life. And you know how you hear it from politicians and others? Well, my faith is a personal thing. See, that's that great theology reduced down to a practical, everyday street statement. My faith is a personal thing. What they're basically saying is my faith is disconnected from my values. It's disconnected from my marriage. It's disconnected from my employment. It's disconnected from life. I go. I attend. I acknowledge. I affirm. But then I go out and do what I want to do. And I don't even, I don't even begin to see that there's a difference between those two. That's a sickness. That's a dysfunction but it occurs most in the area of religion. It becomes a lifeless exercise and heaven shouts down its obscenity. It's four-letter expression. Fake! Nothing worse. John's message came directly from Isaiah the prophet. If you'll notice, in verse 4, it says, make ready the way of the Lord. I want you to know that's not a general statement. That's a very personal statement. That each person has to make ready the way of the Lord for themselves. And the picture here is of an ancient custom where a great emperor was about to enter the city and before he came, it was required of the citizens to go out and build this roadway, this special roadway that would give him due pomp and circumstance and ceremony as he moved into the city, that he wouldn't have to go on a twisted road or up through potholes or over ravines, but he could go directly in the city and it would give him his due. And part of John's message to these people is you've forgotten how personal you must apply real faith. And real faith starts by you looking at the ravines, the potholes in your life, and before God does anything, you mourning over that pothole and saying, this thing needs to be filled. Maybe it's the pothole of moral indifference. The ends justify the means. And you don't think of your religion doing anything in real life. You need to mourn over that. Because until you mourn over that, don't expect forgiveness. 
Maybe there's a mountain in your life, the mountain of pride. It's kind of, I can do it myself, leave me alone. That mountain has to be cut down, and that's a hard thing to do. But this is before God enters into the picture. This is what's required of you, old man, old daughter, who show up and name yourself the name Christian. Maybe there's a crooked road of deceit and deception and manipulation. You need to mourn that that's true of your life. Come to terms with that. Own up to it. Don't blame mom or dad for it. Don't say that's the product of my environment. We are such blamers. But own up to your own sinfulness and say, that's me and that's wrong and that's never going to get me to God. And weep over that. Because until you do, there's no forgiveness. There has to be a repentance necessary for the forgiveness of sin. And we're talking to a religious people. Maybe there's some rough road of ongoing sinful habits. And you can always get to the place with an ongoing sinful habit where you say, I guess that's just the way it's going to be. No, no. You've got to straighten that rough road and make it smooth. You've got to do it or there is no salvation. Only until you work to fill the potholes, work to cut the mountain down, work to straighten out the crooked path, and work in your heart to do away with the rough spots will you come to verse 6. And then you'll see the salvation of God. That's the only time. The rest is a religious fantasy, an exercise of futility that you go through and you're being poured out with all these statements. You're okay, you're forgiven, but you don't feel it and there's no life and there's no energy and there's no power. Because there has to be a preparation of you first of a highway in your heart before the Spirit of God, the person of Jesus Christ, can work in there and bring His powerful, life-changing salvation. That's what this text is all about. You see, real religion at its core is a deep desire of a man or woman to know Jesus Christ personally, to be accepted by Him and loved by Him and like Him. And if it's anything else for you, your religion is flawed. If it's to come to church because you like the social interaction or that it makes you feel good or that it soothes a guilty conscience in some way and you feel like, well, I can make it another day, that's not enough. That's flawed. And it will begin to disconnect in an unhealthy way life from faith to the place that you become a F-A-K-E, fake. And you can't even see it anymore. But let me tell you who can see it. People around you can see it. Your mate can see it. Your kids can see it. Those unbelieving employees can see it. That you're a F-A-K-E and there's no greater obscenity in the kingdom than being a part of it and being a fake. But you know, it starts with a hard message. That John the Baptist was a hard guy. Offering a hard message of get in touch, own up to your sin apart from which there is no forgiveness and new life in an experiential way day to day. Even with this emphasis on the heart, on accepting personal responsibility of sin, even with His message, you know, many of the people who came to John, they couldn't put it together. It made no sense. For some of you, this message will make no sense. It didn't make sense to these people. Look at verses 7 and 8. It said... Here are all these multitudes. I mean, this was not the this was the Jewish National Convention. 
right here. And all the people were coming out to listen to this guy give his keynote address. And as they came, you wouldn't do this to delegates, but here's what he did to them. He said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise from these stones children of Abraham. It's kind of like, don't say to yourself, hey, I'm a Protestant. I go to Fellowship Bible Church. God can raise up church members in a moment. But that's not what He wants. He's saying, you've missed it. Now, I want you to know that sounds harsh, and you're probably saying, gosh, why did He treat these people? I mean, they were coming. They were coming out there to be baptized by Him. Uh, what's the deal here? I want you to know here's the deal. These people were coming, but many of these people were unwilling to openly acknowledge their sin. These people were coming and they weren't owning up to their personal failures, much less were they seeking from their own human effort what they could to offer to God, what, what, what they could do, any kind of intent to change. You know what they were doing? They were coming out to them or to Him with the same old dichotomous view of life which would allow them to submit to John's religious rite of repentance in baptism but without really repenting, and he could see it. See, they wanted, oh, another ceremony. Hey, <laughs> let's go out and all be baptized by this guy. I mean, he's the hottest thing in town. But the idea that what he was really asking for was a real-life repentance of which this baptism was only a symbol, that never even, here's the sad thing, that never even occurred to him. It was like, what are you talking about? They were in another paradigm altogether. It was like, in essence, by saying to them, you show me first your repentance. Demonstrate it. Make it visible. And then I'll give you my baptism. Now, that, you know what that's like? Let me put it in a church term. That's like me being up here one Sunday and giving an altar call to receive Christ and 50 people coming down here. And when they got here, I said, you brood of vipers. Who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? And they're all going, you've got to be kidding me. And then I say to, say to them, before I'm going to give you Christ, you demonstrate that you want to get rid of that old way of life. Go out and make it visible. Show me you're mourning over it. Show me you don't want to be that. And don't blame it on anybody. Look to yourself and say, it's me that's got the problem. And after you demonstrate that, then come down next Sunday. I'll give you Christ. Now how would you feel about that? Is that not tough? But see, until we get the context of who we are and what we are and how far we fall short and in our own self mourn that we fall short of the kingdom of God and yet it's at hand, only till we come to grips with that and want to get rid of that in our life do we provide a context for the living God to walk into our life and say, I'm here to help. Let's change it. And that's why so many people have received Christ and never changed. Because why they've received Christ is for reasons far different than the good news says. And which will ultimately create humanity at its best. So John shocked them. He, he, he blew them away in this. And what is amazing 
is that these religious people had never heard a message like this. They weren't even sure what it meant. Faith and life had been so disconnected for so long that when John said, show me repentance, look what they say in verse 10. They look at him and they say, then what shall we do? See, they're not even sure what to do. They're mystified. It's like they're saying, okay, uh, for those of us who want to repent, kind of tell us, how do we make our repentance real so we can get your baptism? Here's what he says. Look at verse 11. To those people he answered and said to them, let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none, and let him who has food do likewise. Go do something. Show me you want to be different than selfish. And here's how you can show me. You're going to struggle to give more. And the tax gatherers came and they said, what do we do? And he said, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. In other words, he says to these guys who've been doing it all on their own, on their own terms, their whole life, he says, you know, show me you're different by submitting to authority. Show me that. Struggle with that. And the soldiers questioned him. Verse 14, they said, what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. You want to repent? You want a different way of life? Show me by struggling to be content on a meager soldier's salary. Show me that first. Does that sound different than the gospel you hear today? If this doesn't sound somewhat different, maybe I'm wrong, but I think this should kind of shake up some of our boxed theology. Because it is radical. It's saying, show me. John's message is clear. Repentance is not some mystical exercise. Not some existential experience you have in church one Sunday, nor is it some ritual I submit to. Repentance is real life. Made visible in real life. It's not just thinking I should give more. It's wrestling with giving more. It's not just hearing that I should be submissive to authority. It's going back and doing it. It's not just saying I should be content with what I have. It's struggling to be content. And you know what they're going to find in all of that? Here's what they're going to find. They can't do it. Now that's not said in the text, but I think that's what the ultimate outcome is. They're going to go out, these people, but here's what they're going to show in their effort. They're going to show, I really want a new life. And that's the best real life preparation for a new life I know you could possibly have. Best thing I can tell a couple who's struggling with their marriage is what to do and have them go out and show me that they really want to do it and wrestle at it till they fail. And then they're ready for the Savior. And see, that's what John was there to do all along, is just simply prepare a way for the Savior. He wants them to go out, and as they struggle to be content, and struggle to submit, and struggle to give, they're going to find how weak they are, how selfish they are, how rebellious they are, how their very nature is intent to do evil, not good. Have you felt that about yourself? And when you feel really desperate, you're prepared for the Savior of the world and the Savior of your real life. Not some religious experience. I'm going to stop there because we're going to move to communion. We can pick that up later. But communion suffers from the same fakery. We're about to do that, but communion by its very nature is communion with the living God. But in communion, you can go through, in this next few moments, a religious motion. 
and it'll mean nothing. Or you can use communion as a religious people to do what the Scriptures ask us to do, and that's examine ourselves. And I think what would be a great application to this message is use the rest of the hour to do that very thing. Take a good look at ourselves. Own up to our sin. Look at yourself where you fail and ask yourself, how have I demonstrated to God that I want to be different, that I want His life, that I want to know Him and to be acceptable to Him? When there is a deep, hungry yearning for that, then you're prepared for communion and you're prepared to receive the salvation of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these radical words of John. Now as we go about in a few moments taking the bread and the cup, my prayer is that we would look hard at ourselves. At the ravines, at the mountains, crooked paths, at the rough roads. And we would ask ourselves, do I really want these things to change? And if we do, to take the bread and the cup yearning for the God who can bring that change. Help us use the sacred moment to commune with You from the heart, not by ritual, but deeply personal. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.